quite amazed at how you're able to function with this noise. I don't know if I can. Uh, we are too. <laughs> but you know, uh, Chabad is very famous for Mesiris Nefesh, being willing to sacrifice. So uh, we want to put you through, or Mayanot wants to put you through real Mesiris, relative Mesiris Nefesh. This is not as bad as Siberia, not as bad as prison. So, uh, this is only a little, a little bit of Mesiris Nefesh. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was important to say right after class history, or last week. Yeah. Um, since we were talking about um, the death penalty. Yes. I was wondering what is the halacha and permissibility of the trial and execution of Eichmann. Yeah, an interesting, an interesting question. Uh, let me, well, you know, it's not so obvious really, because obviously. If you could have killed Eichmann or Hitler in the middle of World War II, you could do that to prevent him from killing other people. That's the law called Rodev, and you don't need a court for that. On the other, on the other hand, once Eichmann is arrested, once the war is over, Eichmann is no longer a threat to anybody. Uh, so you're punishing him for past crimes. So what is the justification of capital punishment? Now remember, Jewish capital punishment has very strict laws. There have to be eyewitnesses, he has to be warned, don't do this, etc. So the, the, the heter, so to speak, the, 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 the leniency, the justification for executing Eichmann would be under the Noahide laws. Under the laws that apply to non-Jews, it is the seven commandments of Noah. And Jewish people can enforce the Noahide laws against Noahides. And under the Noahide laws, you don't need to be warned. Uh, you don't need religious judges. You don't need eyewitnesses. Circumstantial evidence would be sufficient. So consequently, if there was any justification under halacha for the execution of Eichmann, it would be Jewish enforcement of the Noahide code, uh, which is a, that's, that's a bit of an unusual concept in and of itself, because normally we assume that the Noahide code is to be enforced by Gentile bodies, and Jewish courts are only supposed to follow the halacha, and the halacha would not have permitted Eichmann's execution. But there are many sources, Rashi among others, who actually say that Jews are commanded to enforce the Noahide code against Noahides. By extension, uh, as many of you probably know, uh, one of the Rebbe's uh, mitzvahim, one of the Rebbe's projects, was not to force, but to teach, to encourage non-Jews to keep the Noahide Code. And that's really connected to that, meaning Jews do not try to convert people. We don't proselytize. We don't go out and say, you've got to be Jewish. It's the other way around. If a non-Jew wants to be Jewish, our initial response is to discourage them a little bit. Uh, and only when they want do we then welcome them. So our job is not to convert non-Jews to be Jews. That's not our job. But Maimonides does say, the Rambam does say, that we as Jewish people have an obligation to teach non-Jews about the seven Noahide laws. Uh, so there is kind of a mission to the Gentiles, but it's not proselytization, it's the Noahidism. So the point I'm making is, that, that doesn't only apply to teaching them, but it even applies to being able to enforce it when we're in the position uh, to do it. Okay? Um, yeah. 
Alrighty, so what I want to talk about tonight, since I know that uh, there are some new people here and this is the last the session, so I want to do, a, I'm going to, it's medical ethics we're doing, but I want to do a particular uh, topic. I know I was in the middle of a topic, but I want to do a self-contained unit, one session today, and that is the problem of live organ donation. Uh, it's very interesting, I just heard that you're going to have a presentation on bone marrow and the like, so this is going to tie into that. So actually, it works out well that, that this will fit uh, a program that you're going to be involved in uh, later this week. Now, organ donation actually comes in three flavors. You know? uh, there is organs that are taken from a dead body. Not too many, but things like skin you can take from a dead body. And then there are organs you can give when you're alive, like a kidney or even a partial liver, because the liver can regenerate. And then, the most controversial issue, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I'll get to it, is organs taken from people that we're not sure if they're dead or alive, and that's heart transplants, because there you have the issue of brain death with heartbeats, and that's the big, big controversial area, when is a person dead, right? So we have three types. We have organ removal from the clearly dead, organ donation from the clearly alive and in the middle organ donation from people whose status in halacha may be subject to an argument are they dead or alive and that does involve heart donation and, uh, and, and the like but today we're going to talk about organ donation from the clearly alive now obviously you can't give every organ when you're clearly alive I can't decide oh I'll give my heart because that would kill me uh, so the organs you can donate are essentially, well, there are four. Uh, okay, around, around, I mean, there may be more, but four that come to mind. Number one, you can give a kidney because you have two kidneys and you can live with one. Number two, you can donate part of your liver because although without a liver you cannot live, but the liver can regenerate itself with as little as 20% of its tissue. So you can actually... Theoretically, you could donate parts of your liver to five people. Give them each uh, a little piece of liver. Sounds like a Shabbos meal, okay, whatever. Uh, some liver. Uh, number two, you can do the same thing with a lung. You can actually donate part of, a, part of a lung. That's been done. And number three, skin is actually an organ. We don't think of it as an organ, so a person could <coughs> donate skin to burn victims taken from an area that the buttock or whatever it would be. Uh, so those are the four, basically, that you can give when you're alive. Uh, kidney, partial liver, partial lung, and skin grafts. Yeah. Are we going to talk about like, blood and bone marrow? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now, then you have... Right, right. Now, then you have things that are technically not organs, but are parts of your body that can certainly help people, and that would be a blood transfusion, uh, and that includes plasma, or, you know, different components of the blood. Uh, platelets, and of course, uh, the specific topic is bone marrow, right? So today, we're not going to, again, I will get to it because it's an important topic, I'm not going to talk about the halachic complications of heart transplants where we're not even sure what is the definition of being dead and the like. Today we're talking about the straightforward idea that I'm alive and I want to help somebody, and Baruch Hashem, within the religious community, there are many people that have certainly many people given bone marrow, that's for sure, but even many people have even given uh, kidneys and the like. 
And the question is, we want to discuss what the halachic issues are. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so, so again, you're, you're kind of switching question a little bit. Your question is, when can I have something removed? Uh, and the point that you're raising is that normally we don't own our bodies and we can't just have plastic surgery to look nicer. Uh, that's a vanity thing. Uh, now, again, if you're disfigured, God forbid, then you can certainly get reconstructive surgery. But if it's just a vanity thing, so the question you're asking is... Uh, Okay, if I don't really have a medical need to get uh, to remove my tonsils, but it prevents me from getting illnesses, uh, can I, is that a justification? And the short answer is it is, basically. Uh, because uh, it's not like, you know, a vanity plastic surgery. It's because you don't want to be sick. Now, even if strep is not life-threatening, which, by the way, it can sometimes be, but, but even if strep, let's say, most of the time, is not life-threatening, but you know, you don't have to put yourself in a situation where two weeks or three weeks a year, you know, you're out of commission. So that would be enough of a justification to remove tonsils. Now, uh, it used to be, when I was growing up, removal of tonsils was very, very routine. They, they did it almost automatically. And the prize they always offered, I don't know if they still do this, you got, you got ice cream for, uh, for three weeks, like three meals a day was, was ice cream. And uh, so kids were clamoring, could I have my tonsils removed, you know? And, 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 and the like. I don't know if they do that today, but uh, probably not, not healthy, you know, whatever. Uh, say again? Surgery is not no, no, I, did, I, did, okay, okay, I didn't mean to say it's... No, no, I didn't mean to say it's def definitely not allowed, but it, it's discussed. There are opinions... Yeah, yeah, I'm not giving you a psaac. There are opinions that say that vanity plastic surgery is an improper mutilation of the body that God gave you for a non-medical reason. You're allowed to have operations for medical reasons, but just because you want to look better, I want to look better, uh, there are some opinions, some opinions that say that that is improper unless, unless there's a disfigurement or, or a look that is embarrassing to you. In other words, if, if the, even if, it, even if you were born with it, if, you're, if one's nose is like so big or whatever it is, that they are embarrassed to walk in the streets, so some say embarrassment is treated like a medical condition and you're allowed to correct it. But if you look okay, you look fine, but you want to look better, that's already the question of vanity. Now, I'm not telling you it's forbidden. You have to check with your local Orthodox rabbi that may be me or may not be me, whatever it is. Uh, but uh, it's not, it's not pushed. It's not obvious that vanity surgeries should be permitted in light of mutilation. That's all I'm saying. It's a question as opposed to removal of tonsils, not to get strep, that, that for sure is going to be permitted. By the way, I, I understand that in the Orthodox world, it is not totally uncommon for girls to get vanity plastic surgery because they feel it will improve their chances for a shidduch. Now, that's an awful, that's an awful thing, and really, it's made... Okay, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. Because it's an awful thing, because that says something really, really bad about prospective Jewish husbands. That any husband, and I can tell you right off the bat, 
any person that will not accept you for what you are, including your inner beauty and, and, and the like, is not, is not the right person. Right? So to say that somebody is going to marry you only if you have plastic surgery, not, not, not good. Okay, probably so. Now, Barry, in the Brooklyn Show, so I'm glad, I'm glad that Chabad doesn't suffer from, from that I mean, no, uh, emphasis. Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's a huge issue even in any campaign, but, 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 but you know, you hear about it. Uh, now, as an aside, although that's not my topic, I want to go back to organ donation, let me mention another type of surgery, bariatric surgery. Now, bariatric surgery is very popular in Israel. It's very popular in Israel. Bariatric surgery is for people who are very, very overweight. So it's stomach stapling or stomach folding. Uh, now, it's not liposuction. Liposuction, you know, you can't just take off the, the pounds, unfortunately. That would be relatively easy. Liposuction is for five or ten pounds. That's all they can do. But this is something in which they staple your stomach or they close things off. And by definition, you cannot, you cannot uh, overeat, so to speak. Basically, uh, you will be sick. If you try to do it even once, you will be sick as a dog. So you lose the weight pretty fast simply because it is impossible, so to speak, to eat beyond a certain quantity. You get extremely, extremely sick. Uh, so bariatric surgery is actually very popular uh, in Israel. Uh, the kupat cholim, you know, pays for it uh, and the like, which is not typically done in the United States. Uh, this, this is a very, very serious uh, shayla. On one hand, uh, indeed, if someone is severely overweight, there may be some very significant health problems, and sometimes it is said it is a life, uh, you know, a life-saving surgery. On the other hand, it can make you very, very sick, and quite a few people get it reversed. They get it reversed, and when they get it reversed, they regain the 100 uh, pounds that they lost like in two months. So it's a very mixed, it's a very mixed bag. Uh, but all I'm saying is, that is not the same. Bariatric surgery is not the same as uh, cosmetic surgery, because it's not just for appearances, it's for very, very, you know, potentially very severe health problems. So, you know, these are things you gotta talk about, uh, obviously get the best medical advice you can, and then talk with the Rav as well in terms of the halachic uh, ramifications uh, of it. Okay, uh, but going back to the organ donation, and I, and I will include in my discussion bone marrow and, and uh, you know, blood, uh, and that is the following. The way the poskim characterize it, now you, you may argue with this characterization, right? At the, so the first thing I'm going to tell you, you may disagree with, but they say like this. They say the problem with donating an organ like a kidney or partial liver is you are putting yourself at risk to your own life, even though it may not be a significant risk. Meaning, yes, you can live with one kidney, but the risk of kidney failure, because it's being overtaxed, is greater than a person with two kidneys. There's a reason why God gave you two kidneys. So the question becomes halakhically the following. Are you permitted to put yourself in a dangerous situation in order to save or benefit another person? You are putting your life in potential danger. So here, let me give you the ruling of the Talmud Yerushalmi. Now, as you know, you're students of Gemara. Uh, the Gemara that you're learning, the Talmud that you're learning, 
is called the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud Bavli, because it was, no, the Mishnah was written in Israel, and the commentary on the Mishnah, which is called the Gemara, right? So what is Talmud? Talmud are two books together. Mishnah plus Gemara equals Talmud. So the Talmud, mainly, that means the Gemara, the Gemara and the Mishnah that you study and that every yeshiva, in fact all the yeshivas, that's what they study, is Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud. But you know there's actually an earlier Gemara that is earlier than the Talmud Bavli that was written here in Eretz Yisrael, around 200 years earlier, and that is called Talmud Yerushalmi. Now understand that the Mishnah is the same. Both Talmuds are commentaries and elaborations of the same Mishnah. But the Yerushalmi has one, dis- one discussion, and the Babylonian Talmud has other discussions. Now, Talmud Yerushalmi, and it's an interesting question why, is uh, very important, uh, but it's far less studied than Talmud Bavli. The curriculum of every yeshiva in the world is focused uh, on Talmud Bavli, and uh, the Yushalmi is studied only by the greatest uh, scholars, the greatest Talmud Echachamim, who, you know, they, they enlarge what they learn beyond the, the norm. Now, when there's an argument between the Talmud Yushalmi and the Talmud Bavli, the halacha like in the Rambam and in the Shulchan Aruch. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, the halacha is like the Babylonian Talmud. That, in fact, that's why the Babylonian Talmud has become the primary book that we study, because halachic determinations are based on the Babylonian Talmud. Of course, you could be a little cynical. You could ask, who established that rule? Who says the halacha is like the Babylonian Talmud. <laughs> the answer is the Gaonim of Babylon established that rule. But, 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 but okay, but be it as it may, that did, become, that did become the rule. However, there are many laws in the Talmud Yerushalmi that the Talmud Bavli does not address. So the halachic rule is that when the Talmud Yerushalmi says something and the Talmud Bavli does not disagree, even if it doesn't endorse it, it just didn't address it, we then do follow the Talmud Yerushalmi. That's kind of a simplification of how the halachic system works. Now I say it's a simplification because there are times where Maimonides follows the Talmud Yerushalmi even against the Talmud Bavli, and that's unusual. Most of the time, if there's a conflict, we follow Babylonian Talmud. If there's no conflict and the Yerushalmi addresses something that is not addressed in the Bavli, we will follow the Talmud Yerushalmi. And that's why a posek, one who is a great authority of Jewish law, must know the Yerushalmi as well to pick up those laws that are not always mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud. Now, the Talmud Yerushalmi, again, just a little bibliographical information, uh, is, on one hand, much shorter than the Talmud Bavli, that the, the pilpul, the, the, the analysis, is truncated. But, in one way, it's more complete, because the Babylonian Talmud does not have a Gemara on all of the Mishnas. For example, the order of agriculture, which is the first order of the Mishnah, does not have a Babylonian Talmud because the laws of agriculture, like Shemitah, mainly applied in Israel. The Jerusalem Talmud even has a Gemara on the tractates of agriculture. So as a result, when it comes to agricultural laws, the Talmud Yerushalmi is an extremely important source 
because the Babylonian Talmud may not, may not address. I'm sorry, someone had a hand up? Uh, yeah. Is there something that we know of, that like a commonly known halakha, that is ruled according to the Talmud Yerushalmi? Yes, yes. The law that you cannot eat matzah on Erev Pesach. Now I know many people have a custom that they don't eat matzah from Purim. That's a custom. But according to the halakha, you're not allowed to eat matzah only on Erev Pesach, so when the Seder comes, you'll eat matzah with enthusiasm. That, you never knew that halakha? That, that's, no, I, I knew of the minhag for the month before. I didn't realize there was No, but there's halakha. an absolute halakha that on Erev Pesach you cannot eat matzah. Okay. And it says anyone who eats matzah on Erev Pesach is like a man that has intercourse with his betrothed before the marriage. In other words, it's too early, so to speak. It'll be a good thing in the right time, but you don't jump the gun. Now, that's a very well-known halacha, it's in the Shulchan Aruch, and it is not in the Babylonian Talmud at all. It is in the Jerusalem Talmud. So there are a number, I can give you, I, can, I actually have a swarm that give you like listing of the laws it may not be directly, just so you'll have a sense that some of our halachas are based on the Yushalmi, but that's the one example I can remember uh, off the top of my top of my head. Okay. Now, based on that, by the way, you know, the, if you look in the back, you see the Schattenstein shots, the English translation of the Babylonian Talmud. As uh, I don't know if you made a point of it here, you know, there the, the was just a worldwide celebration of the finishing of the whole Talmud. Uh, because there's a Dafyomi program where people study one page of the Talmud every day. And if you study one page of the Talmud every day, you actually finish it in seven and a half years. So that's a big accomplishment. And uh, so they just uh, finished it January 1st, in in, in the secular New Year, and they had 90,000 people in a a football stadium, MetLife in New Jersey. And they had big gatherings here, of course, in, in, in Israel. And they're still having gatherings. They're still going to have some gatherings as well. Uh, this was Dafyomi. In fact, Dafyomi is even on Chabad.org. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Chabad t- uh, has their own yearly things, whether it's Chitat or, or, or other other things. So they we're not doing Dafyomi because they have so many things they have to do. But uh, if you look at Chabad.org, if you're you know if you're interested, I, I, you know, probably not. But if you're interested, you can get a Dafyomi share even on Chabad.org. Recorded uh, the whole the whole Talmud. Uh, they've they've done that as well. So uh, one of the reasons why Dafyomi became very popular is because of those very excellent translations in the back, like what are 86 volumes or whatever, whatever it is. But Art Scroll began translating the Jerusalem Talmud as well, which has been far less studied, but it could very well be that that might encourage a resurgence. I'm not sure, I can't say, I'm not sure if you have Yushalmi volumes there. Uh, probably not. But you have the Babylonians, so they also have, now they're doing the Jerusalem Talmud as well, which I think may indeed cause many more people to uh, learn the Jerusalem Talmud as well. I mean, part of the problem is we don't have the great commentaries like Rashi. Rashi Mm -hmm. is the great commentator on the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, You don't really have the same, you know, there's no Rashi. There's no Rashi in the Jerusalem Talmud. So there are other commentaries, but, you know, Rashi is Rashi. (laughs) Rashi was so special in his clarity and his brevity and, and, and how he was able to communicate things that you know, Rashi is not replaceable by, by any, anything else. So that's part of the problem of the Yushalmi. Okay, now why am I giving you all of this uh, bibliographical information? Because the Yushalmi has a very interesting rule that is directly applicable to organ donation. The Yushalmi says 
not only may you put yourself in danger to save another person, the Talmud Yerushalmi says, you must put yourself in doubtful danger, doubtful danger, we'll, we'll talk about that, in order to save somebody that is in definitive danger, somebody who for sure will die unless you rescue him. You are, uh, you are obligated to assume risks to your own life. Now, somebody who needs a kidney, if he doesn't get that kidney, he's going to die. So that is a person that is called, in Hebrew, vadai, vadai sakana. Vadai sakana means he is in a state of 100% certainty that he will die without a kidney. Now, if you donate a kidney, you're putting yourself in possible danger, but maybe not. Baruch Hashem, many people give kidneys, and they do fine. Right? So that's what's called suffix sakana. Vadai sakana means somebody who is definitively going to die. Suffix sakana is you're putting yourself at a risk, but maybe nothing will happen. So the Talmud Yushalmi actually says a person is obligated, not just permitted, a person is obligated to put themselves in, I'll use the Hebrew, suffix sakana in order to take somebody out of what is called vadai sakana. So, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, now, I didn't say it's the halacha yet, uh, not only would you be permitted to donate a kidney, you would be halachically obligated to donate a kidney or a partial liver or a partial lung because a person who needs kidney, liver, lung is in a state of vadai sakana and you're only a suffix sakana and therefore yes very good yes thank you thank you uh, and therefore the suffix must yield to the vadai suffix is the doubt must yield to the vadai so if all we had was the Talmud Yushalmi we would actually say live organ donation is mandatory mandatory now problem is though as I indicated, just because the Yerushalmi says it doesn't make it halacha if the Babylonian Talmud disagrees with it. If, on the other hand, the Babylonian Talmud does not disagree with it, let's say it doesn't say anything, then that would be the halacha. So the question becomes, what does the Babylonian Talmud say about this particular question? It's complicated because there is no explicit reference. So if I simply ask myself, is there a Talmud Bavli that says you have to put yourself at risk or you don't have to put yourself at risk, that would answer the question, but the answer is there isn't. But what the Achronim have said, the Achronim are the more recent generations of rabbis, have said that we can infer by indirection that the Babylonian Talmud disagrees with the Jerusalem Talmud and does not create such an obligation. So I want to discuss, it'll be a little technical, I want to discuss the inferential proofs in the Babylonian Talmud to negate the rule of the Talmud Yerushalmi. Yes? Um, so, does that mean that you have to put yourself in danger, like you have to search out someone who... No, so that I would say you don't, meaning obviously these are commandments that 
when they come your way, when you become aware. You don't have to look for them. But once you become aware, you know, you have an obligation. Now, obviously, there may be many people that are capable, so then you'd have to decide among yourselves who would be the best person to meet that obligation. But if you're the only one, you would have to step forward. Now, I'm going to give you two cases in the Babylonian Talmud that inferential, inferentially seem to disagree with the Yushalmi, although it does not explicitly do so. Case number one is a famous case, and I bet you you actually learned this at some point in your education. And this is a case of two people are walking in the desert, and uh, one of them has a bottle of water. And if one person drinks the water, that will keep him alive till he gets to a city. But the other one is going to die. If they split the water, then both of them will be able to walk halfway, but they're both going to die. So here's the question. If I drink all the water, I'll get to the city, and you'll die. If we split the water, we'll both live a little bit longer, but we're both going to die. Now again, these are theoretical questions. You never know. So the question was, what do I do? Do I drink the water and you die right away? Or do we split the water so each of us will die, but will each of us will live a little longer? Ah, so it's an argument. There is one rabbi who's only mentioned once in the Talmud. This is the only place he's mentioned. He's otherwise unknown. Ben Patura. There's no other statement in the Talmud. Ben Patura says, since the Torah says you must love your neighbor or love your friend as you love yourself, you are obligated to treat another person the same way you treat yourself. You are obligated to split the water even in order to keep the other person alive a little bit longer, even though the probabilities are such that you're both going to die before you get to the destination. That's Ben Patura. But Rabbi Akiva, now Rabbi Akiva is famous, right? The great Rabbi Akiva says, wait a second. There is a rule that your life has priority. And therefore Rabbi Akiva says, what's the sense of splitting the water and two people will die. Mm -hmm. The person that has the water should drink it all and that way he will live. Now, if he wants to give the water to the other person, he can do that too. But the point of Rabbi Akiva is it is better that one should live and the other die right away than two should live a little bit longer but they're both going to die. Now, there's a general rule in halacha that whenever Rabbi Akiva argues with anybody, the halacha is always like Rabbi Akiva. So it turns out that, Rabbi, that we, can, we can put aside Ben Patura here. So the halacha would be in the case of the water, one person drinks it. Now, here is what the Nitziv says. The Nitziv is an abbreviation. He was a great, great uh, Rosh Hashiva of the 19th century in Lithuania. Uh, Nitziv is just an abbreviation. Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Berlin was the last name. So Nitziv, is abbreviation. he's called the Nitziv. The Nitziv says like this. What's the case here? If you're talking about, if you split the water, two people are for sure going to die, then Ben Patura makes no sense. Why would Ben Patura say two people are going to die? 
So the answer must be the following. The case has to be redefined a little bit. If you split the water, it's not that two people are going to die. The two people might make it, but you're putting yourself at risk. Meaning, if I drink all the water, for sure I'll be safe. If we split the water, I might die. So in other words, the Machlokas Rabbi Akiva and Ben Patura is on the Yerushalmi's din. Must I put myself in danger in order to rescue you? Because if I don't give you water, for sure you're going to die. In other words, Ben Patura is not saying split the water if they will die for sure, because that's not sensible. Ben Patura is saying, split the water and put yourself at risk to take the person out of Vadai Sakana. So it turns out, according to the Nitziv, Ben Patura is following the Yushalmi's rule, and Rabbi Akiva is rejecting the Yushalmi's rule. Right? That's a kind of a little bit of a complicated analysis. So if Rabbi Akiva is rejecting the Yushalmi's rule. And in the Babylonian Talmud, the halacha is always like Rabbi Akiva. So the Babylonian Talmud is ruling, not like the Yushalmi. And you're not obligated to put yourself in safek sakana in order to save a person from vadai sakana. Therefore, the Nitziv proofs, right, it's a complicated proof a little bit, but the Nitziv proves from this machlokes that the Babylonian Talmud rejects the premise of the Jerusalem Talmud, and therefore there is no halachic obligation to put yourself in danger in order to take another person out of a vadai danger because that's included in the principle that your life has precedence. Yeah. So it seems, though, that by Rabbi Akiva's ruling in the case of the water, that he says you're obligated to drink all the water. Okay, so that's, yeah. That would seem yeah. like then you would be prohibited from, yes, that, prohibited from drinking. Yes, that's an excellent question. So, uh, and that's not the halakha. In other words, uh, the way we would understand Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi Akiva is not prohibiting the division of the water. Rabbi Akiva is simply not compelling it. Meaning to say, Ben Patura said, you must split the water. Rabbi Akiva is saying, you need not split the water. But if you want to split the water, you may do so, which means that's actually the halacha. You may donate the organ. You're not obligated. You're right. You'd have to interpret Rabbi Akiva that way. You need not split, but you may. Now let me give you a, yeah. Is there any opinion that you should give all of the water to the other person? No, no. That, that would not make any sense. Now again, there are opinions that permit you to do so. But to say you have an obligation, I mean, I mean the reason why that makes no sense is because as soon as the other guy gets the water, he'll have to give it back to you. <laughs> You're telling me, I am obligated to save your life, here's the water. Well, now that you have the water, you're obligated to save my life. Right. You know, so, so it makes no sense to impose <laughs> that type of obligation because all that's going to happen is the water is going to go back and forth forever and ever till they both die. So, so, so it's not possible to impose an obligation of that nature. Yeah. So all lives are about of the same value. So in other words, a mother of young children and a young 
Man, yeah, or, yes. you know, would be So equal. in terms of yeah. obligation, they're all equal. Now, okay. again, a mother can certainly decide that she wants her child to live, and that would be or, permit, permitted or whatever, yeah. but uh, technically, as, as cruel as it sounds, technically a mother does not have to give her water to the yeah. child. Again, uh, I would assume most mothers would... You know, would we'll do it, and that's permitted. It's per- of course it's permitted, yeah. but technically she can say, you know, it's my life. You know, <laughs> it's my water. <laughs> it's my water. That's right. Get your own water, kid. Right. Uh, okay. Of course, it's. I mean, I haven't read the original language yep. of it, but it seems like what Rabbi Akiva is saying is is not that of course you have the option to give it over, but that like whoever. I mean, in the case of a mother and child, it's difficult because he doesn't have his own possessions. But I'm saying like between two people. It's not clear to me that, like, between me and a friend, I have the opportunity to choose. Oh no, I'm not saying it's clear. All I'm saying is, it is a it is a possible interpretation. That's all I'm saying. Meaning, it's ambiguous. Uh, When you read the Gemara, you're not clear if Rabbi Akiva is saying you must keep the water, or you do have the option of splitting it. In other words, that that that's uh, one of the unclear points. This, by the way, I don't know if. um, yeah, you're learning about Mitzia. Actually, it is in Bava Mitzia. This is a Gemara in the second chapter. Are you doing the, what parak are you doing? Huh? Okay, so you just missed it. So it's in the uh, it's in the second chapter of Bava Mitzia. This 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 machlokis. Okay, so maybe you could uh, look around and, and find it. I, I, I honestly, first I don't remember. I could find it, but I don't remember the daf off the top of my head, so I can't tell you the exact page. Alrighty. Now let me give you proof number two which is a little complicated. This discusses water rights. Now, water rights is a very, very big issue. It's certainly a very big issue in Israel, and it's a big issue in America, too. And that is when you have rivers, and the rivers, of course, run from upstream, from higher ground Mm -hmm. to lower ground. And along a river bank, you have towns, you have villages, and they draw water for their needs, whether it's drinking, laundry, bathing, whatever it would be. And the problem is sometimes that if the upstream people take too much water, there'll be nothing left for the downstream people. So the issue of water rights discuss uh, how much can upstream people take when it's going to affect what's available to the downstream people. So the Gemara says the following. Certainly, the upstream people can take all of their drinking needs because if you don't drink water, you die. And even if that leaves the people downstream without water, that's exactly Rabbi Akiva's din, that I got the water first, so I get to use it for, for, for my survival. Now, this is actually uh, an analogous situation to Rabbi Akiva. But what if they want to take water not for drinking needs, they want to take water for laundering their clothes. Mm. Are they allowed to take water for no. laundering their clothes if that will leave the people downstream with insufficient drinking water? No. So the Talmud actually says, <laughs> the Talmud actually says that since if you wear unwashed clothes, you can get sick with parasites and uh, you know, other types of things, Therefore, it is not just your drinking needs that can override their drinking needs. It is even your laundry needs. Yep. 
like yeah. how you do like let's say let's say like you could say let's try to maybe do laundry a little bit less like yeah. let's be a little more dirty but like right. yeah, like right. I know it sounds gross but like I feel like there's like certain levels yeah it's you right. it no, that, 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 that's correct that people can use uh, yeah 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 now 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 first of all I want to point out the following I want to point out that you can interpret the whole Gemara that the Gemara is not talking about the upstream people are putting the downstream people in danger of, of, of starvation or dehydration, this could just be a monetary. In other words, you could learn the whole Gemara has nothing to do with endangering people. It's simply a question that they're going to have to get their water by paying, paying it. In other words, the whole discussion there might be understood as a property discussion, not a pikuach nefesh discussion. In other words, the, lo- the downstream people are not going to die as a result of your decisions, but it's going to be more inconvenient. They're going to have to pay to have water trucked in. But again, the Nitziv does not learn the way. The Nitziv actually understands the Gemara that the upstream people, by diverting the water, are affecting the survival of the downstream people. And even though dirty clothes is not going to kill you for sure, but parasites are treated as a suffix. And once again, the concept is, this rejects the Yerushalmi. I'm not obligated to put myself at doubtful risk, even if I, even, by, even though by not putting myself at risk, um, you know, people are going to die. In other words, these are two proof texts that the Babylonian Talmud rejects the rule of the Jerusalem Talmud. So where you walk away with, therefore... Huh? But this is different yeah. from the kidney thing. Yeah. Because if you take more water, yeah. then you are putting the, the downstream people in danger. Yes, in yes. Thing. But yeah. if the... No, just different... That, that's that, that's, a, that's a very good... I, that actually is a good... Yeah. a kidney problem, no one's put me in danger. Yeah, that, that's like a very good point. That, that's, a very excellent, uh, that's a very excellent point. The point that's being made, just, just to repeat it, is that it's one thing to say, if you're in danger, I don't have to do something that'll put me in danger. But here, when I take the water for the laundry, I am actually doing the thing that's putting you in danger. Yeah. I'm the one, right? That's what you say. Yes. I'm the one doing the danger. That's a lot worse. Who says, it's one thing, I don't have to respond to your danger. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to say, I'm allowed to endanger you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. That's, that's a very excellent question. Uh, and, and yet... Well, the post can say from this Gemara you're allowed to, but, but still, it, it, uh, it is a very good point that this is going beyond, uh, even if you disagree with the Yushalmi, you wouldn't automatically permit this. That, that, that is a very good question. Yeah. I feel like we're forgetting that at that time, hygiene didn't exist, and like people, people were talking about laundry once a week for clothes that were worn once. People were talking about when you have like sewage running in the streets. Yeah. No, correct, correct, correct. The whole thing, like really... When no, you think about you. They're saying like any no, water like other than... No, here it was not like that. You have, yeah, the conditions in like the 1800s yeah, in Yerushalayim like, were gross. And so we're talking about 2,000 years ago. Right, I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. No, no, you're, you're, you're right. No, the, your, po- your point is that modern modern uh, frequency of laundry would not pose such a da- da- danger. We're also talking about like if you don't, outside of drinking water, like bathing water, like, these are also people who bathe that often. Like you're talking about yeah, that's correct. That's correct. That's correct. So do not apply these categories to a modern situation. You are correct, but they but they do establish a principle. 
still right. The principle yes, is still a good principle. Right. Uh, yeah, question. Sometimes they like this might be the door. Well, well, well. Obviously, obviously, uh, when you launder dirty clothes in water, unless you take the water out of the river channel, you are polluting the the river channel. Uh, so uh, if that's how you wa- need to wash the clothes, you can do that. But generally, there are rules you don't pollute. In other words, upstream people do have a responsibility not to render the water going downstream undrinkable. So there are water pollution pollution rights. Again, these are complicated issues, and these are still, even even in this day of indoor plumbing, you know, we still think everybody has water. You know, it's, it's not so simple. Water has to come from somewhere. Water does not come from the sink. I mean, water comes from reservoirs, and it comes from rivers, and it comes from uh, lakes, and uh, there are going to be issues of uh, this group uh, doesn't doesn't have enough water, so... You know, we're, we're not used to it. We're used to always having water whenever you open it up. But, but even to this very day, there are parts of the world and even parts of the United States, parts of Israel, where it's not so obvious every time you open up the uh, faucet, uh, you're going to get uh, water. So water rights is still a very, very important issue. In fact, in Israel, it was one of the most important issues. I mean, now we're, we're focused so much on terrorism and war and peace, but uh, water... Water is an extremely important issue uh, with uh, Israel and the Arab countries and, 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 and the like. Australia, uh, right, a, lot, a lot of places in the world. Uh, whether it's... Huh? Yeah. Cape Town just had in South Africa. That's right, South Africa. Cape Town, that's right. massive drought. Like right. we literally saw, I saw, I yes. turned on the tap and some water didn't come out. Wow. Like in Chile, the water is yeah. privatized. All water. Now they now they have rivers that like don't exist anymore. So is that is that working out well? Are people are taking advantage? They're overcharging. No, they're they're like having a lot of protests for a few months now. Yeah. Every yeah. day, yeah. entire day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean water. the issue of privatizing water is a complicated issue because uh, water is the one the one thing you know you can go. Yeah. The same problem like people like from big um, farms. Yeah. They take all the water because they have money, right. and then they downstream. Nothing, nothing's people left for the downstream. Don't have any money. Don't have any water right. anymore. That's right. That's right. Down. Yeah, that's right. So that's why you know the arguments water. against. I mean, I'm not going to give a whole share on water right now, but uh, privatizing something that people cannot live without is always a very, very dangerous thing, because uh, you're going to give it to the highest, uh, the, the guy that can pay the most money. You know, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a very, very difficult, difficult situation. Okay, all right, so uh, this is complicated, but the takeaway is relatively simple. According to the Talmud Yerushalmi, a person is halachically obligated to give an organ, even if that puts them at risk. According to the Talmud Bavli, we've got got two proof texts that there is no obligation to do so. Nevertheless, the poskim have said that even like the Talmud Bavli, it is permissible Again, you could argue with that, but that, that's the conclusion. And because it is permissible, it is considered to be a big zechus. It is a meritorious behavior. It is a laudable behavior uh, for a person to be willing to donate an organ, but it is not a mandatory behavior. Now, the reason why it's important to know the difference between a mandatory behavior and a mitzvah if you do it, but it's not a chiyuv, is that if something would be a mandatory behavior, you have no choice, you got to do it. Okay. If something is 
a mitzvah, but you're not obligated to do it, you have to balance it against other obligations that you have. So if a mother of five children were to decide she wants to donate a kidney, in the abstract, that might be a wonderful decision, but she then has to consider the possible impacts on the family that she has. You can't just be unidimensional. You can't just say, oh, this is a good thing, I'm going to do it, because you always have to look at, well, it's a good thing, yeah, but how will this affect other things that are even more important um, than that, because I have a family and the like. So again, I'm not giving you a psaq, Baruch Hashem, uh, there have been many, many, well, not many, but uh, you know, a community of people uh, who have given organs uh, within the from Jewish community, and uh, they are doing uh, they are doing well. And if one can do it, uh, it's something to consider. But it's not a it's not a chiyuv because there are risks that are involved. Now, let me give you a case that happened in Israel around 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. Very very interesting case. This involved a, uh, a, a, like a 20-year-old, I'm making up some of the numbers, but let's say approximately 20-year-old boy, 20-year-old man, who uh, needed a kidney. And, you know, for all organ don- uh, donations, you have to have a genetically compatible organ because the body rejects foreign tissue. In fact, uh, this is why people die after organ donors, because in order for them to accept something that's not 100% exact to their body, they have to take anti-rejection drugs. Now, you understand, when you take an anti-rejection drug, you're destroying the body's immune system, fighting disease. So if a person with an organ, a received, a donated organ, gets a cold, gets a cold, they could easily die from the cold because there's literally no system in their body. The immunity goes down to zero. There is no system in their body that fights even an innocuous germ. We don't realize, you know, any germ can, can, can absolutely kill you unless you have an immunity that fights it. People, most people have some type of normal immunity uh, that's going to work, but not a person that receives an organ is on those medications. So in, this, in the case of this uh, man, there was no compatible donor on any type of list. The only compatible donor was his 14-year-old brother. I'm sorry, his, tw- his 12-year-old brother. 12-year-old brother. That's going to be important. He was and the, he's not, He was not bar mitzvah yet. That, that's right. And the 12-year-old brother wanted to give the organ, and his parents wanted him to give. But they were religious, and they asked the Shiloh. And the psak was the following. It may sound very, very harsh that since there is no obligation to give an organ, it is only a mitzvah, it's a good thing, you have to be able to consent freely. Because it's not a chiv, it's not an obligation. And a child below bar mitzvah is not considered capable of consent. And even though on medical decisions, halacha recognizes that parents can make medical decisions, for minor children, I mean, that's secular law as well, that's only if the decision is made for the benefit of the child. So I, as a parent, can consent that my child have an operation that the child needs. But this is not a procedure for the benefit of the child. This is a procedure for the benefit of his older brother. They said parents don't have the authority to impose a burden on their child. Now, if the kid would be bar mitzvah, he could decide on his own, he wants to give his organ, 
that would be fine. But if he's a minor, which is below 13, or for, in the case of a girl, below 12, he's not, he or she is not able to make that decision, and the parents cannot make it for him. So as a result, the psak was, the child could not give the organ. I, I heard that the story was, tragically, that the older brother died before the younger brother became bar mitzvah, so there never was a donated organ. Now, if you think that sounds cruel, let me tell you that American law is a lot worse. American law also says minors cannot donate organs, and the definition of the age of majority in the United States 18. is either 18 or in some states 21. So it turns out halacha is actually more liberal. Halacha would permit a 13-year-old boy to donate a kidney. The secular laws of the United States would not permit a 13-year-old to donate a kidney. But in the United States, huh? is Israeli law different? Uh, no, Israeli law is, is the same as American law in that, in that way. Israeli law, the secular law of yeah. Israel. Yeah, Halacha would permit a 13-year-old donor. Secular law so would it, not. Yeah. So even if he was 13, he wouldn't be able to give the organ because of the... That would be a secular. Secular, secular. yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure how that works out if everybody agrees, but, but secular law would, in, in the United States would prohibit it. Well, what about in uh, Israel? I mean, here. Well, I, I'd have the to check. I mean, Israel, has, Israel does have secular laws that are sometimes contradicting Halacha. So I, I, I'm not sure how that would work here. He may, he may not have been able to give it anyway, uh, but the halacha would have permitted it. Maybe he'd go to uh, some other country and have it done surreptitiously or, 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 or whatever. Yeah. Is there any um, concern that this child will like, possibly live the rest of his life feeling that he Yes, so, so that, that, that's a very excellent point, and that's why I, I myself feel that the psak, exactly for the reason that you said, the psak could have gone the other way, meaning uh, the Beistin did say that the parents could consent to the procedure if it's for the benefit of the child. But they argued it's not for the benefit of the child, it's only for the benefit of his brother. But that's not totally true. Number one, if the child's brother lives as a result of this operation, that is a benefit for the child as well that he has a brother. Number two, the younger brother who could have saved his brother, now, now there's no reason for the brother to feel guilty, he didn't do anything wrong, but psychologically, if the younger brother goes through his life knowing that he could have saved his brother's life and he didn't, that's a devastating burden on the child. And number three, it may very well affect how his parents Now again, this, this is irrational. I know it's irrational because the kid didn't do anything wrong. But Lamaisa, the way the, the human psyche is funny in that way, and every time parents are going to look at their little boy, they're going to say, he's the reason why the older brother died. He could have, you know, he could have saved his brother's life. You know? So based on that argument, I think the based in could have paskind that uh, we will permit the donation from the minor because this is not only for the benefit of the older brother, this is the benefit of the minor. But, but, nevertheless, if instead of talking about a brother, we would be talking about some unrelated person that they don't know anything about, then the, pr the principle would still be there that uh, you, know, you, don't, you can't put yourself at risk if you're a minor. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you another case that happened in the United States. And this did not involve Jewish people, but let's ask ourselves if there would have been Jewish people 
what would the halacha say? And this is a famous case. Uh, this was, uh, I think they made a novel out of it, and they made a, a movie out of it, and oh, they I made a show out of it. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, two sisters, and this involved a bone marrow transplant in which uh, one sister had leukemia, mm-hmm. and she needed a bone marrow transplant for leukemia. And uh, there's a registry, of course, but there was no compatible donor in the registry. Her two parents were not uh, compatible donors. So the uh, young lady would die uh, without uh, a donor. So the parents thought about the following idea. Why don't we try to have another kid? Let's conceive a baby. Genetically uh, Right, and then we will perhaps have a genetic compatible donor. Now, this, genetically designed the baby. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. well, well, there were a lot of different yes, pro- the, there were a lot of different problems here. No, maybe these these are things that they added to the movie or something. No, this because is the book. I oh, okay. So did they do like okay. screening? So let, let me just give you a few a few a few uh, issues here. Uh, number one, uh, Dad had had a vasectomy uh, beforehand, so he was not that had to be reversed. And it can be reversed, but it's only at a 60% rate of success, meaning it's not that simple that it's going to be successfully reversed. Mom was undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer, so she could not conceive until she got the drugs out of her system and she went into remission. She was also over 40, so the chances of conception uh, were not uh, optimal. And since neither parent was a donor, you know, there, was no, there, was no, there was not an automatic guarantee. But, but everything worked because of the genetic modifications and, and uh, the vasectomy was reversed. And Baruch Hashem, you know, really amazing thing, that little baby Marissa was a perfect donor for adult, for her teenage sister, Anissa, and uh, did well. Now, uh, unfortunately, there's a little sad, sad part of the story that when uh, little Marissa grew up, somehow, somehow she was convinced to bring a lawsuit against her parents for assault and battery because she said that her body was assaulted uh, without her consent, not for a legitimate medical purpose. I'm not sure how that case came out, but she brought a lawsuit that this was an unlawful invasion of her, of her bodily integrity. Okay. Whatever it would be, I'm not sure what uh, induced her to uh, bring that lawsuit, or what money she would get out of it, or whatever whatever it would be. Uh, but it's an amazing story. So now, let's ask ourselves the, the the halachic question. Let's imagine this would be halacha. And here's my question: I told you a psak uh, five minutes ago that we are not allowed to take a kidney from a tw- from a 12 year old boy. Right. So here's the question. If we're not allowed to take a kidney from a 12-year-old boy, are we allowed to take bone marrow from a 30-day-old yes. baby? Uh, because you would think, if I can't take a kidney from a 12-year-old, then how can I take bone marrow from a baby? Or, or do you see that there might be a But they don't have as much yeah. sense. Of like, self. if you take yeah. the bone marrow... Fine, the baby will be fine. Yeah, so that's right. So that's the key. That's the key difference. The problem. Very, very good. You're exactly correct. The key difference is that kidney, a vital organ, even though you can live with one kidney, but statistically it puts you at a, a certain higher risk. 
for kidney failure. So the principle is, if we reject the Talmud Yerushalmi, we reject the Yerushalmi, you're not obligated to put your life in danger to save another person. You're permitted to do so, but in order to do so, you have to have consent. You have to agree, and a minor cannot consent. Bone marrow and kalvachomer, a fortiori, blood, uh, there is no... Uh, appreciable danger. Now, now, I don't want to say there's absolutely no danger because anything done under anesthesia, particularly a young baby, theoretically has some margin of danger, Mm -hmm. but it's very, 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 very small. And even though removal of bone marrow is painful, it is, there is, there is pain, and that's why they have to have general anesthesia, and even with the anesthesia, there is pain afterwards, but it is not regarded medically as a life-threatening procedure. So, as a result, you don't have, you don't have two things on the opposite side of the scale. Meaning, when it's my life in danger versus saving somebody, so the the Babylonian Talmud says, I don't have to endanger my life to save somebody. But when my life is not being endangered, then all I have on the other side of the scale is saving that life. So for sure you got to do it. Which would mean, actually, that donation of... this, This ties into your... The, the, the organization you're going to hear from, what is it called? Gift of Life? I, I didn't hear the name. Yeah, so in truth, it actually seems a very strong halachic case can be made that donation of bone marrow, if you are a compatible donor, is an obligation. Because if you're not risking your life in any way, and this can save the life of another person, at that point, you're obligated to save a life. Now, I have heard cases, and to me, it's frankly unbelievable. I don't, I don't want to judge people in a negative way, where people who are the only identified compatible donor said they're not giving because they'll have to take off a week from their work, and they're not uh, willing to do that. Now, that's frankly unbelievable. I mean, to say basically that... You don't think that they're correct. just not afraid and they make... Well, well maybe they make... I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, what, what, what needs to happen is this. What needs to happen is that the Jewish community as a whole needs to provide the economic... You know, there's some, you know, I understand. If somebody is going to lose a, a week's money or whatever it is, or even lose their job possibly, that could be very, very tragic. But uh, the Jewish community would have an obligation to provide the uh, donor with all of the financial help that the donor needs. So, so you shouldn't make such a decision. How can you say, I'm not going to save your life because I'm going to lose my job? I mean, that, I understand how somebody might say that, but that, that's, that's not the right uh, the balance of values. So we have an achrayis. The community has a responsibility to be sure that people are not put in that, in that choice. Yeah? Yeah. I can see sense in someone saying, I don't know how comfortable I would be matching with this person. Like, for example, I signed up for the donor registry because there's someone in my community that needs a kidney and I wasn't a match. Yeah. But if I'm matched with someone else, the reason I signed up, it was for this person. But now if I meet another person and kidney donation is a lot more intense than anything else. It's yeah. the top of school. For however long it is, I don't know if I personally have like 
Well, now again, let me just, let me just remind you, I, I did mention that when it comes to kidney donation, you don't have an obligation uh, to do it. Uh, but bone marrow, bone marrow, I think you would. Uh, it is perfectly fine to, to match up for a specific person. Uh, that's good. The only question is, once you're in the registry, I mean, then the problem is for, for you to then decline somebody else, I think which would create uh, an, ethical, an ethical problem. Yeah. So is there then an obligation to sign up for the registry, there's a potential to save somebody, or even if someone just never signs up? So that, that, that's a good question, and, and uh, it's not clear that you would be obligated to sign up. So when you do sign up, you're always assuming the risk that you might be called, and once you're called, I mean, I'll give you an analogy. You know, a doctor uh, saves lives, right? So a doctor can desecrate Shabbos if necessary. Uh, but you're not obligated to go to medical school. In other words, you're not obligated to say, you know, there's a mitzvah to save lives, so I gotta go to medical school because that way I'm gonna save lives. You know, these are mitzvahs that when you're in the situation and it hits you, you have to respond, but you don't necessarily have to put yourself in that situation. So in a smaller way, do, do, uh, donating bone marrow is a similar point. You don't have to be in the registry, but once you're in the registry, you've got to respond to what comes your way, and you cannot turn your eye away. Quite literally, what does Leviticus 19 say? Do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. No, no pun intended. Lo tamod al dam uh, That's exactly what's going on. If I say... Uh, yeah, you know, this person's going to die, but you know, I, I can't do anything about it. I'm standing by uh, when I'm able to help them. Yeah. I had a question about, um, for example, there's a shooting at NAS Pensacola, and there was photos of just rooms full of soldiers like lined up to give blood. They didn't know they would be a match, but they gave blood anyway in the hopes that they might be. So if they're not going to be matched, is there any, like, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In other words, I want to point out that even though I just said you don't have an obligation, but if you want to help because there is a possibility that you might be of help, that is certainly a, a meritorious deed. And in fact, that's something that we would encourage. We would even encourage it for a kidney and certainly for renewable things like bone marrow, blood, platelets, and the like. So, God forbid, uh, we're not callous to this, but just in terms of an obligation, we wouldn't concretize it as an absolute obligation. Yeah. Two things. One, as like a PSA, Gift of Life has an option when you sign up, if you sign up, to say that you're not willing to donate to random people, and also that they like totally fully fund if people are like blown out or whatever, like Gift of Life is very financially generous and well-supported to make it happen for donations. Um, and then to you, Rabbi, I had a question. In my family, we had a situation that a child needed a general anesthesia surgery, and what they told my family was that the risk leveled off after one year. So in that case, let's say you wanted to, not the situation in my family, but like if the risk does change over the course of the first year and then levels off after. If you had this child that you wanted, you had them to have the chance to give bone marrow to an older child who is sick. Would you be obligated to wait until that child is a year old? Because there is still some risk associated so, with... So, you know, in, in a way... say so, Okay, I mean, this is a complicated question. In a way, you would have to assess how significant the risk is. Meaning, risk is not an all-or-nothing thing. I mean, if you went with the idea that you're not allowed to engage in risky behavior, then you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Uh, every time you cross the street, you don't know for sure, even if you have a, a walking, uh, you don't know, if, especially in Israel, you don't know that the car is going to stop. 
you just assume you're just making a certain what, assumption. What we were told was that after nice a year old, here. the risk yeah. of general anesthesia was the same as crossing the street. Okay, so that's really the issue. The issue basically is risks that are the same or less than common human activities mm-hmm. don't count as risks. Right, but before then, okay, was, uh, I don't know what it was. There, I, I assume it was higher. There may be there may, there may be a point at that point that you'd have to wait. That 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 that, that, that is correct. Okay, so that yeah. Can you get paid for giving bone marrow? Uh, you can certain. Okay, let me put it this way. Uh, you cannot condition your giving on being paid, mm, okay. but you can ask. Meaning to say, you have to be willing to give it for free, but you can say, hey, you know, I'm going to give it for free anyway, but I'd like some money. Uh, it's okay to ask. Okay. <laughs> it's okay to ask. It's not, it's not against the halacha to get paid, but it's against halacha to refuse to do it unless you get paid. Same thing for organs. Uh, there are laws in Israel and in the United States, you're not allowed to get paid for giving an organ. And those are laws, but those not halacha. Halacha says... You're allowed to get paid. The only problem is you shouldn't condition. You shouldn't say, I'm not going to help you unless I get money. That, that is the problem. Okay? So that's kind of uh, issue number one. So I, yeah. Sorry, one more question. Yeah. The receiver is for anyone, not just Jews, right? Oh, okay. That, that's, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up. So because this is a, a big, big issue that permeates a lot of medical ethics. Uh, is there a difference between giving to Jews, giving to non-Jews? Uh, technically, there actually is a difference, but practically we permit it for everybody. Uh, and the reason that's given is, now this is an interesting machlokas, how to interpret it, because of darchei shalom, ways of peace, we permit donation to non-Jews. Now, listen to this interesting argument. There is an ar- the word darchesh or the phrase darchesh shalom appears in the Talmud. But there's an argument between Rashi and Rambam. What's the concept? Rashi makes it a very particularistic idea, meaning we got to be good to the Gentiles because if we're not good to the Gentiles, they'll come back and get us. Meaning to say, if we were to say, I only give to Jews, I don't give to the non-Jews, the non-Jews might, you know, pogrom or whatever it would be. Which means, which means, according to Rashi's understanding, really, you shouldn't care about the Gentiles, but we do it out of Jewish self-preservation. That's Rashi's opinion. Maimonides is very different. Maimonides embraces what you actually might call a universalistic ethic. Maimonides says ways of peace equals emulating the ways of the creator whose mercy is on all. And the same way, that's Maimonides, the Rambam. Rambam. And the Rambam said, oh, Maimonides is Rav Moshe ben Maimon. Edis in yeah. That's Rambam, what's the abbreviation? And we follow him. Well, well uh, you, you could follow him. I mean, you know. It, 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 yeah. And Maimonides basically says, just as God has compassion for all of his creations, we as Jews are obligated to emulate the path of the Almighty and have compassion for all human beings, even for animals. So this is very fascinating. According to Rashi, so the bottom line is the same. You can give to a non-Jew. The bottom line is the same. But it's a whole different rationale. According to Rashi, you do it because it's Jewish self-interest. 
according to Maimonides, it's the ethic, it is the ethic of universalism in which we believe that all human beings are in the image of God. So it's a philoso- philosophically, it's a very interesting uh, machlokas. Yeah. Wait, but we're not obligated to give to non-Jews? Uh, well, according to, my, according to my money, is that a bone marrow or organ? No, organs, you don't even have to give to a Jew, as we say, kidneys. Right, right, yeah, but, right. But, but bone marrow, which I said is mandatory, uh, it would appear, yeah, that, that would appear, according to Maimonides, it would appear to be mandatory. According to Rashi, perhaps not. I see. Yeah. So there's no... That may be a difference. There's that, no clear, right, right, there's no clear decision on that. It's possible. It, it depends on the situation. Meaning, if, if you made yourself available and then you said, oh, he's a non Jew, I don't want to do it, that's one situation. In fact, this applies to the laws of Shabbos as well. You know, technically, if a non Jew has a heart attack on Shabbos, uh, you're not supposed to uh, call the uh, ambulance. Or, I know that was changed 400 years ago. Oh, well, 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 well the, the, base, the basis why it was changed yeah. is the idea that uh, here, here Rashi's argument is used that not to intervene for the life of a non-Jew would cause mm-hmm. great, great damage and harm right. to the Jewish people. So practically, I want to emphasize, practically, whatever the torturous route you get, you, you get to, mm-hmm. practically, we, we absolutely do call the ambulance, we'll even drive, uh, drive ourselves, drive the non-Jew ourselves, if we have to do it. So practically, that's why every few years, you know, the, the press uh, in Israel, the non-religious press, is very anti-religious. Ho'aretz, you know, there, there are newspapers in Israel that are very, very leftist, and uh, they sometimes uh, have campaigns against religious Jews in Israel. So every few years, Ho'aretz always has a story that in Bnei Brak, which is a very religious city, some non-Jew had a heart attack on Shabbos, and everybody walked by and let the person die because they're not allowed, not, they're not allowed to you know, violate Shabbos for a non-Jew. Every single time, they run this story like every two years, and every single time it is proven to be an absolute lie. It's absolutely, number one, it didn't, it didn't happen, and, and if it did happen, they called the ambulance. <laughs> right? So... Uh, it's almost a stereotype. So you're going to hear this about religious Jews, and it is it is not true. Uh, we will call the ambulance uh, for the non-Jew, uh, even though we have different reasons why why we do it. I mean, the reasons may may differ, and and the like. Okay. So this is uh, really topic number one, uh, and that is a live organ donation. Now let me mention briefly topic number two, which uh, is relatively short. So I think I can literally finish it. Heart transplants, I'm not going to deal with because that's a big topic. But topic number two are organs that you take from a dead body. Now the truth of the matter is there aren't that many organs you can take from a dead body because organs deteriorate very rapidly. But you could take skin, you could take some things that do survive a little longer. Corneas, corneas uh, are things you can harvest from dead bodies. What about something like a lot of time with organ transplants, something like that person is about to pass away and they go in and get those organs? Yes, yes, but the problem there is that uh, the person is only brain dead, but the blood is still circulating. He's, he's oh, yeah, okay. yeah. That's the, that's the middle right. case I'm going to talk about. Oh, okay. Yeah. So here is an issue. We know that Judaism does believe that dead bodies have to be treated yeah. with a lot of respect. Not because we worship the body, we don't have, a, but, but rather, just like the cover of a Torah scroll 
has to be treated with kavod because it once contained the Holy Torah. So even if it's just a cover, a mantle, so too, bodies are treated with respect, not because the body is holy, but the body was the repository of the godly soul. The body is like the mantle of a Torah scroll. Wait, can you repeat that? Words? Yeah, I was just saying that the same way that the cover, the mantle of a Torah scroll, mm-hmm. must be treated with respect because it once was the cover of the Holy Torah. So a dead body must be treated with respect, not because the body is, is, is that important, but because the body was the cover of the divine soul that is within it. That's why people make a mistake. Sometimes people will say, uh, somebody died and people will say, don't speak ill of the dead. Meaning when you're alive, I can say what I want about you. But once you're dead, no, that's a mistake. We don't honor the dead because they're better than the living. It's the other way. We honor the dead because they once were alive. How much more so we have to honor people when they're alive and they actually have the godly soul that is within them. So because of this, Judaism has many, many laws about burial. We don't believe in cremation. Cremation is a very, very big avera. Uh, We don't uh, believe in autopsies. Again, that's sometimes going to be a problem. Autopsies are when the body might be cut up in different pieces. Now, there is a big problem. Sometimes there are secular laws that require autopsies, and you have to negotiate around them. But as a general rule, uh, if any of you want to go to medical school, do not be a pathologist, because pathologists work with cutting up dead bodies. And indeed, it was even a problem going to medical school, because uh, going to medical, uh, traditionally it was uh, anatomy. Don't you have to do well, they, they, yeah, but, but now you'll see they're actually replacing it because of a short, not because of religious reasons, but because of shortages of, Body. of bodies. Yeah. They now have computer simulations, which are quite amazing. I haven't seen them myself, but they can create graphics, which uh, are even, yeah, I can't say they're better than a real body. To me, a real body would obviously be better. Uh, but, but there are, you'll see in medical schools, they are moving away from cadavers. But there was a problem. For a Kohen, for sure there was a problem because a Kohen is not allowed to come in contact with dead bodies. But even for non-Kohens, uh, the problem was uh, you're cutting into dead bodies. Giving your body to science is not halach. I'm not talking about organ donors. I'm talking about giving your body for a dissection. Absolutely prohibited because uh, you know you don't cut into bodies. That's called nivol hames. Nivol hames is desecration, nivo, of a dead body, and that's prohibited. Uh, so as a general rule, we don't cut into bodies. So the question becomes, is removal of organs from dead bodies, whether it's a cornea, whether it's skin, is that a violation of nivo hames? Is there a problem there? Yeah. Um. So in medical schools like in South Africa, they still use dead. I mean, yeah. you have a dead body. Yeah. When you're doing any medical. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So you, because why do you get a hetter in order to do that? You have to talk to a rav. A rav may give you a hetter because the body is there anyway. Uh, sometimes you can get a hetter to watch and not cut. You know, it, it, you have to. It very much has to be discussed with the rav because it is not at all simple. Now in Israel, the way it works in Israel is some medical schools. 
use dead bodies, but they recognize religious exemptions, meaning, you know, in Israel they, they try to be accommodating of religious needs. So they still do it, but they'll allow you as a student to get out of having to do it directly. Yeah. Is there any issue with taking, like, hair off of a dead body? Uh, yes, there is an issue, uh, because uh, once, a per- once a person... No, once a person dies, so everything on the body yeah. is part of the body, even yeah. things like hair, nails, and... So and, even though and, while the person was alive, meaning... Yeah, while the person's alive, right. The person who's alive, yes, you could yes. cut hair off for like a wig or something. That, that's correct, that, that's correct. Yeah, but what about a non-Jew? Uh, so that's, that's an argument, uh, but, 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 but most of the posts can say that the prohibition of Nivol Hamesh is based on the idea that all human beings are made in the image of God. So it's not specifically a Jewish thing. It's a human thing. That human beings have a certain dignity and holiness. Couldn't you argue to save, like, for example, like skin rashes, right? Like there's people who suffer from like... No, no, no. This is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it like this. So here's the thing you need to know. Even though it is true that you don't remove things from dead bodies... But if you are removing it to save another person's life, look at it this way. The same way I can violate Shabbat to save a life. I can violate Yom Kippur. You can violate everything. Everything, except for idolatry, right? So, so it turns out like this. Cutting into a dead body is not strict. It's a prohibition, yeah. But it's not stricter than Shabbat or Kashrut or Yom Kippur. So the same way all of those laws can, can and must be violated to save a life, so removal of organs that are potentially life-saving, such as skin grafts for burn victims, would certainly be permitted. Now, an interesting, I'll get, I'll get, the interesting question is, is a corneal transplant, a life, uh, right, a corneal, uh, right, that, that uh, prevents blindness or, or whatever, uh, is that called a life-saving procedure? Right. So here the post can say, yeah, a person who's blind can face all sorts of dangers, traffic or whatever it is. And there is a statement, a blind person is dead, right? So uh, that would be that. So the point is this. It is true, you're not supposed to remove things from a dead body, but it's also true that to save a life, you can and therefore, giving your body to science is illegitimate because that's just research. Uh-huh. But if it's actually going to go to somebody whose life can be saved, but is it that's much like, Yes, yeah, so, so here the post can have differentiated between what you might call fishing expedition, long-term research versus direct therapeutic mm-hmm. use. Oh, and, <laughs> and that's how the halacha differentiates. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to get to that because we didn't discuss brain death today. Uh, but many opinions do say that even if we're not allowed to remove organs from brain dead people, once they are removed, I'm allowed to receive them because the guy was already killed. Say again. Does it matter if they're Jewish or not? Uh, even if even if they're yeah, yeah in other words either either case it would not it would, this would not matter actually, but we'll, we'll discuss that the next time. Yeah. Is there any precedent for 
preference level for someone's dead or alive in terms of, I mean, if you take someone's cornea and still alive, it's going to affect them. So is it preferable then to take from a dead person? I, th I think so. I would think so because, uh, once again, uh, you don't want to adversely affect a person who's still using his eyes. There's a hierarchy of who you Yeah, yeah. I think the dead would be better than, than the living. Yeah. On Yom Kippur, if, well, I have two questions. If on Yom Kippur, like a doctor tells you, um, like, this needs to be done as soon as possible, um, I guess maybe you wouldn't even find out on Yom Kippur because you wouldn't have anything on you. But, yeah. Okay, but um, <laughs> would you have to do it then, or would you say that as early as possible is right after Yom Kippur? You know, you'd have, you know, you'd have to ask the doctor. I mean, meaning to say, a lot of times things don't have to be done instantaneously. Right. So, if there's five hours left for Yom Kippur, you know, right. usually things can wait five hours. But you know, if the doctor says it cannot wait, then don't be a tzaddik. You know, do it then, even on Yom Kippur. And then the autopsies, is, does that include, like, you can't cut into non-Jews and Jews? Yeah, so th th there's an argument about this, but, but Rav Soloveitchik, uh, Rav jo Joseph Soloveitchik, said that the prohibition of autopsies is based on the idea that all human beings are made in the image of God, mm -hmm. and therefore it is not a Jewish thing, it's a human thing, right. and therefore even non-Jewish bodies would have to be treated with that same, same respect. Okay. By the way, I want to mention one final thing about cremation. Sometimes a parent will ask a child please, please have me cremated mm -hmm. and promise me mm -hmm. that you will cremate. And a person may promise his parents right before the parent dies that they will get the parent cremated. And the question then becomes, what should the child do now? A child feels awful. You know, this is what I promised my mother in her last moments. But you should know that even if you made a promise, even if you swore that you would get her cremated, don't do it. Don't do it. And you can rest assured that the parent is much, much, much happier not having it done. Really? That, that is not a betrayal. That is giving their soul what their soul really, really wants. So I know that psychologically it's so difficult to violate a promise that you made to a parent. But halachically you do it and you're, you're, you're not hurting, you're only benefiting. Yeah. So when we come back after... Uh, we will come back as we. Oh, uh, okay. So let me address that. Yeah, yeah. My no, no. Let me let me address that issue. Some people make the argument that I can't donate a cornea. I cannot donate my eyes. I can't donate because resurrection of the dead. I'm going to be missing all these pieces. The short answer is that no. It's a good question. Uh, but that. But it, but it's but it's not. It's, it's not. It's not a valid. It's not a valid argument in the following way. I mean, for example, what about all the people who died in the Holocaust who were burned? They were cremated against their will. The short answer is that if you did a mitzvah in giving those organs, if you did a mitzvah in saving a life, or if you were a victim of what somebody else did to you, miraculously, resurrection is a miracle anyway, miraculously Hashem will give you everything that you need, meaning you will come back uh, with your eyesight, with your eyes, with your heart, with, uh, with everything. In other words, you are not going to lose when you gave up uh, something in order to save save a life. Hashem will give it back to you. So this is important because a lot of religious people make a mistake. They say, I can't give an organ because I'm not going to get it back in resurrection. That is not, not a true statement. Okay, anyway, you'll be well. Have a good week. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you. We'll, so next week we'll, we'll just talk about...
brain death and heart transplants. Right? That'll be the, the thing. Oh,